Hello, hello, and welcome to FO's The Takeaway. Roundup, hottest takes from around the NFL. Break them down, figure out just how spicy they are, and just how much truth is sprinkled in them. My name is Kale Clinton. With me is my co-host, Jackson Roberts. Jackson, another week, another takes. We are getting down to crunch time. I like that, and I like the way you just broke it down as well, Kale. Giving the elevator pitch for the show and probably the most succinct package we've had it yet. It's not just the players and teams that are, you know, stepping up their game, making a playoff push. It's you as well, introducing the takeaway. Listen. It's all about midseason adaptations. It's about mm. getting better than you were the week before in the ramp up to what is a really, really contentious playoff picture. More than more than half the league involved in this. Like NFC competition might not be there, but it still feels like it's running 10 deep. I think that's partly because of the <laughs> NFC South. AFC yeah. actually very contentious. You know. Top to bottom. Let's get right into it with Thursday Night Football. A game very pivotal in deciding one of those playoff spots. San Francisco overtakes the Seattle Seahawks, the last two really vying for the NFC West. And with that win, San Francisco locks up the division. Brock Purdy, short week. Playing with some bruised ribs and a, a rib oblique injury. Gets the job done. The guys over at Bleacher Report, though, think it's not that just the division in sight. Their take, Brock Purdy can win a Super Bowl. Let's hear it from them. And it done this year. Can he win a Super Bowl with them? I'm going to go ahead and say that I really do think so. I really think so. Their defense is so good, man. How many times have we seen, you know, in not not rookie quarterbacks, but journeyman quarterbacks, you know, really latch on to a phenomenal defense and make the Super Bowl, per se? Rex Grossman with that 06 Bears team. We got Trent Dilfer, obviously, you know, famously Trent Dilfer with the 2000 Ravens. Jim McMahon with the 85 Bears. We've seen great defenses make runs with mediocre quarterbacks. You know, all it's about in that case is, turning the opposing team over and scoring off of those turnovers, just like we talked about earlier. Is Brock Purdy enough to ride a defense to the Super Bowl? Now, I want to give our boys here some credit because they made this take before Thursday Night Football. So this was this was already preordained, and now the Niners won. I know they only won by eight points, but it was a win in pretty dominant fashion in a hostile environment against a team fighting for their playoff live. So I think that gives a lot more viability to the take. As far as the meter goes, and this is credit, immense credit to Brock Purdy, and immense credit to the Niners, as he said, as a whole. I think it's a lukewarm take. It honestly might even be trending towards cold in terms of how much of a limb it's going out on, because he's right. The Niners' defense is a Super Bowl-winning caliber defense, and if you bring up some of those other examples, whether it's the Trent Dofer Ravens, whether it's, I mean, I think the most poignant example now because it's the modern era is the 2015 Denver Broncos. Even with 
supposed limitations of Brock Purdy at quarterback, and we kind of haven't seen those yet because they've so heavily childproof this offense. The Niners have more offensive talent than most of these teams that are defensive-led Super Bowl-winning teams. We saw George Kittle get back to the dominant form he can be in last night with two touchdowns. We've seen Christian McCaffrey really blossom in the last few weeks, become kind of the bell cow in that offense. Uh, and you're going to get Debo Samuel back for the playoffs, maybe even Elijah Mitchell as well. This team is loaded on the offensive side of the ball, so they can still score with the best of them, uh, even with Brock Purdy at quarterback, and then the defense is lights out. And I think that's really where the take you know, hits, but also doesn't get too hot, because who's to deny the defense at this point? I agree with you. I think the take is a li- like, I'll call it lukewarm. Because I think it's a little spicier than they might be letting on, than you might be letting on, just because this this would be pretty much unprecedented. Like, in terms of just the caliber of player who's doing the replacing, even in the, you know, Philadelphia Eagles 2017 – like, Foles was somewhat of a veteran quarterback, had, had more experience in just his rookie season. This is more akin to a Tom Brady. And that's what Kyle Shanahan does so well with his offense. The fact that this has really just been taken completely out of Purdy's hand, having a reliable back like Christian McCaffrey, having the offensive line to protect Brock Purdy. The overall skill positions in the passing game are enough to get it done. And then, yeah, you lean on the defense field. Mark. I, I think it's spicy just because how unprecedented this is. Like, a truly last overall pick. Like, if he wins a Super Bowl with this team, like, there isn't, like, there's teams that have ridden bad, like, had bad quarterbacks with good defenses. There's few teams have had a rookie day three quarterback come in for a veteran starter, take over a system seamlessly and lead a team to a Super Bowl. Yeah, I I agree with all that. I think what really drives it home for me is every other team in the NFC has big questions going into the playoffs too. The Eagles obviously are the favorites here, but we haven't seen Jalen Hurts win a playoff game yet either. Um, we talk a lot about the difference between you know quarterbacking and offense and in general just winning football in October versus January, right? Like you can you can scheme a lot of things into existence during the regular season, and then when the pressure's really on, it does more often come down to just kind of the individual, uh, just kind of the stones that a player has to have in order to to come through in those situations. So obviously that applies to Brock Purdy, but it applies to Hertz as well. Uh, and then the Cowboys have a 25-year playoff curse hanging over their heads. The Vikings are the worst 10-3 and team in DVOA history, and no other team in the NFC is worth mentioning right now. So it's both a plus and a minus for Purdy in that column that I think every other team in the NFC has serious questions hanging over their heads. Listen, as, as I've established many a time on this show, there is a path. There is certainly a path for this to happen. I'm just saying, if it happens... There is, there is little historical precedence for this. I think it opens up no, a lot. There's no historical precedent for a lot of things that a Kyle Shanahan offense can do, Kale. What was 
Can we come up with a name for the the fake double bubble screen pass to a wide open tight end for a 50-yard touchdown over the middle? I don't have a name for it. It's just awesome. It's, <laughs> it's just the coolest sick. thing I've seen all year. It's speaking of that though, it just opens up like it if Brock Purdy wins a Super I think it opens up a much larger conversation about how necessary a, a, a real quarterback is in some offense. Like, can't like it opens up a much larger conversation of can you win with league average quarterback play and good to elite play elsewhere. It would really fly in the face of the the 2021 Rams, right? Which seemed to prove the converse of this theory that Brock Purdy can win a Super Bowl, which was that you can have a dominant regular season offense with an average quarterback like a Jared Goff, and then you get to a Super Bowl, and Jared Goff gets completely shut down by the Patriots, who, if you listen to the old Mike Girardi report, were salivating over the chance to show Jared Goff looks he hadn't seen all season. You can think about a team maybe doing that to Purdy, Whereas last year, the Rams bring in Matthew Stafford and you're down in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl and he's able to lead game-winning drives. So that's that's just an interesting little dichotomy here is last year we seemed to maybe prove the opposite of this Brock Purdy can win the Super Bowl theory. But yet I still believe that it's possible with this Niners team as is currently constructed. Stat, the Stafford example is interesting because I also think that they were just better equipped to mount comeback. Like they had it, like they had a defense that could stop an opposing offense. And they also had an offense that could actually like generate explosives and like be very good. I think it's not just, it's not just quarterback. It's also like adaptation in scheme there. It's, it's Sean McVay being a more veteran head coach. But I think play here. it does lead very well into our next topic, our first headline. Because just like Super Bowl year, Sean McVay with Jared Goff. A certain young offensive-minded head coach has also gone through a period of just being solved. And that's Mike McDaniel with the Miami Dolphins. Two weeks in a row. Two different approaches from the San Francisco 49ers and the Los Angeles Chargers have really stifled Tua Tungavailoa, Tyreek Hill, and the Miami Dolphins passing attack. Go to the athletic show. It might be worse than we actually think. They go into a lot of detail of what two is not willing to do in some situations, whether it's passing to running backs or taking those cover two hole shots. But the real indicator is what Robert Mays brings up to close the argument. That's the beginning of the conversation. The fact that it was two different approaches. Yes that led to them struggling like this is more problematic than if it was one specific blueprint that teams were rolling out because now it's not one specific set of solutions there different teams can do different things to you depending on the quality of their personnel right and i think right. that is important to take into account yes. as we're thinking about how the dolphins solve this a lot of different teams are well equipped to handle what the Dolphins have thrown on them. Now that teams know how to stop. Now the playbook's out on this current iteration. Jackson, put it on the meter. 
So, well, just to begin things, I do not think that you can put this on McDaniel as much as you can on Tua, right? Like, if you watch the Chargers game, there are more open receivers than you might think there were based on the stats that Tua puts forth. They're just taking away his first read. They're disrupting Tyreek at the line of scrimmage, disrupting Waddle at the line of scrimmage. If he's going through his progressions and, like, there's open guys in the flat, there's, you know, Trent Sherfield open over the middle every once in a while. He's just gotten used to, like, hitting the same throws to Tyreek and Waddle all year. Now, I, I think he can adjust. I think he's proven this year that there are things he does well and that McDaniel's going to continue to find ways to maximize those things that he does well. Um, but, you know, you have to be worried that two different teams with two different defensive skill sets have slowed them down over the past couple weeks. I think it's, uh, again, in the lukewarm range uh, because I'd be pretty concerned if I were a Dolphins fan, and I don't think it's going to help that they have to go play in a potential lake effect snow game in Buffalo this week when it's ideally an opportunity for you to get right and get back on the winning track. That's not what this week is going to represent. Uh, but I don't know. I, I still have a lot of faith uh, in McDaniel as a play caller, as an adapter, uh, to at least figure out some secondary solutions within the context of this season. Um, doesn't necessarily mean I think the Dolphins are making a deep playoff run, uh, but I wouldn't be hitting the panic button on the future of this team with McDaniel at the head and Tua behind center. I'm gonna push back on the fact that, like, there were open looks. San Francisco, yes. Like, San Francisco did it very differently than the Chargers did. It's the same end goal. It's make to a hold it, second guess that pre-snap read, go away from, or, like, immediately take away the reads that he trusts that he trusts are going to be open by design, not necessarily anticipating, but just relying more so on those throws being open and making him read. And that's where, you know, Bosa has his day with the Niners. Van Noy had, you know, immense pressure against two on Sunday night, but they do it differently. San Francisco had Fred Warner take away the middle of the field entirely. It's still a lot of, like, cover two heavy looks. But because of the range of their linebackers, like, they're giving stuff underneath, but two is lofting the ball because he's worried about the range of these linebackers. Chargers, like, really took a lot away. Like, still like still running those zone looks, still running those mixed looks. Uh, you know, throwing some exotics at him, too. Like, Drew Tranquil goes from lining up on the line of scrimmage. And then going to like the post bailout, like dropping twenty yards into coverage on some on one play, like really doing some impressive stuff, some creative stuff in the pass game. They really took a lot away. Like they had answers for everything the Dolphins were throwing at them. And this is, as Aaron Schatz pointed out, Bills aren't very well equipped at covering what the Dolphins are in terms of over the middle passing. I think there's something like 25th according to shots in DVOA. Georgia's were 26th before third or before Sunday night and were able to cover it seamlessly. Like now that this is out, like the defensive minded coaches will be able to kind of snuff this out. I think you're right though, in the sense that 
it is more Tua than McDaniel. Because Nate Tice pointed out that Tua is something like 22nd in the league in throwing to running backs. Uh, there were elements in the Chargers game where corners were so pressed on inside leverage and so focused on getting inside leverage on their receiving, like on their assignments, on the receivers the Dolphins had, because they're okay giving away that cover two hole shot, because they believe that Tua can't hit that. They're like, we'll give you this all day because we don't think in time, in a pocket, you're going to be able to make that throw. And he hasn't really shown an ability to hit that. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating to see what defenses do from here because I just don't know the wrinkle. Like the, like the wrinkles could be there. The wrinkles could just be checkdowns, which the Dolphins got to much earlier against the 49ers than they did against the Chargers. I think there's also some runs there. But at the end of the day, like those big tough guy, like the the real man maker quarterback throws, or like the real like star maker, I guess. Like those cover two hole shots, like I don't know if Tua can hit unless he's rolling out, getting away from pressure, and then hitting it on a straight line. Yeah, and that's what all always this was going to become, right? Was defenses forcing Tua into situations where he has to make V throw or V play versus McDaniel scheming guys open and not childproofing, but making this offense essentially a a bevy of plays that Tua is not only comfortable making, but does really well, right? Like throws, you know, one-on-one coverage deep balls really well. Hits guys over the middle in quick succession with really quick footwork really well. How is McDaniel going to adjust, but also how is Tua going to adjust into making some of these throws, like the, like the whole shots you describe, like a 15-yard out, for example, uh, that he hasn't been forced to make at all this season because this offense has been so efficient and just running the same concepts over and over again. I really think it's what separates them from being in that top tier with Buffalo, Kansas City, and I'll throw Cincinnati in there. I really think that is the singular thing that separates them. There's going to be some additional uh, improvements necessary out of the defense. I don't think they can kind of just do the same, like, crazy cover zero blitz heavy packages they were doing early in the season because I think teams have better answers for those now than they did in, like, so Belichick was running them five, six years ago. But – I really, like, this is the one thing. Like, if they can get this wrinkle, we're going to talk about it more in the in later in the show with reference to McDaniel, but I really think if they can get this wrinkle down, if they can make these corrections, and then still later, once it's like, once it's now a chess match and you're adjusting to the correction, then the old stuff opens back up. Then you can get the stuff you really want. Well, McDaniel seems to be confident. McDaniel seems to be confident they can do it. Uh, If you watch him in practice this week, you know, cranking the AC down in the facility, dancing around during warmups, wearing the t-shirt that says, I wish it was colder. He doesn't seem to be worried. So that seems to be a good sign if you're a Dolphins fan. Yeah, I listen, I I think they've, that's a separate thing where they're bringing space heaters on the sidelines. It's mid fifties in LA. Like that's anecdotal stuff. That's like, that's them playing the rep game against us a very snowy Buffalo Bills team. I'm more saying like whether like regardless of this game, it's a it's a roadmap 
for the rest of the season? Because this is still a team very much vying for a playoff spot. Yeah, and look, they they fattened up on incredibly soft matchups over those middle weeks of the season, and Tua looked like an all-world quarterback, and their offensive efficiency numbers were off the chart, beating up on defenses like a Chicago, a Detroit, a Cleveland, a Houston. Uh, so now they're just you know playing against other playoff contending teams and having to figure out what their identity truly is, uh, and that's gonna you know I think that's that was bound to deal them some setbacks. And yeah, I don't view them in the same contending tier as I do KC, Buffalo, or Cincinnati, but I still think they're a scary matchup for teams when it gets down to it in the playoffs because they do have this level of explosiveness that not many teams can match up to. Speaking of teams fighting for their playoff lives, Jackson, let's talk a little Giants. I would love to talk some Giants, Gail. Um, The Giants have been in a fascinating situation all year long where right from the jump, they were vastly overperforming on expectations. And when it comes down to it in the second half of the season, they didn't expect to be fighting for their playoff lives, but they are. So with major questions hanging over their offseason, specifically the impending free agency of both Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley, it becomes a question of, what do you do with those guys? But also, what do they have to prove down the stretch now that they've overshot expectations, but they're here and looking to make a playoff push? And if you listen to Dan Graziano on Get Up this week, Kale, the answer may just be they have nothing to prove. Let's give it a listen. They really are. So what is at stake here for Saquon, for Daniel Jones and others in this game? I I think, look, I I think Saquon and Daniel Jones have shown the Giants this year what they wanted to see, right? Like, you're not – if Daniel Jones guts out a tough win here on on Sunday night, the Giants aren't going to be surprised because they've seen him gut out tough wins for them earlier this year. They they believe – they know what he is, right? There's – and I think going forward, he's going to be a free agent. There's probably a number for them – that they feel good about with Daniel Jones contract-wise. And if, it's, if he wants more than that, he probably goes somewhere else. With Saquon, a little bit different because, you know, he's got the superstar potential that they've seen. He can carry a team. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see that contract situation. But I don't think either one of them has anything to prove Sunday night. I think they have, they have been the thing that the team can count on all year. I think this is a team that obviously has to build up all the other areas of the roster in the offseason. The question is whether these guys will be around to build around or if they have to replace them. Too. Very quickly, let me put it on the meter. Nothing to prove for Daniel Jones or Saquon Barkley in these last four games of the season. Can I put them on the meter individually? Yeah, absolutely. I think Saquon's cold. I think Jones is hot. I think it's a very spicy take to say that Daniel Jones has nothing to I think Sa- I think Saquon, you're absolutely right. There is few pl- like there are few players. I understand the injuries that Saquon has had. I think the Giants might be able to get a bit of a discount this season, considering just how many games Saquon has missed since drafting, like since being drafted by the Giants. Just how many. And just how well he's performed, like, separately. I hope they're able to get a discount because I hope they keep I, I I think he really works well in that Dable system. This has been one of his probably 
best seasons in a Giants uniform outside of his rookie year. I don't think that's too hot to say. But the Jones thing is interesting. Because Daniel Jones is a good is a good mobile quarterback, is like can kind of throw a little bit. And he's doing a lot with Darius Slayton, Richie James, and Isaiah Hodgins as like his three guys right now. Daniel uh, and is he back? Oh, he was back last week. He played. Okay. okay. It was hard to notice because they barely had the ball because the Eagles were just running it down their gullets all afternoon, but he was there. That was a uh that was a Sunday ticket game for me. That was like kind of watching the corner, not too attention. Okay. Didn't know he was back. But still, like not a ton to work with. And he's done well. Like he's done well's a stretch, but like he's performed. Giants are winning games. That's always good. He's like just around league average in DVOA. Thing is, he's got to prove he can be a replacement level quarterback for another team. This is where he's got to do some gutsy wins. Like this is where he's got to butter his bread. I don't know if he's I don't know if he's going to be the guy for the Giants. He can be at the right price. But his audition has to be for 31 other NFL teams. He has to be able to find that next job. I don't think he can rest on his laurels for a what, 7-5 and 1 Giants team. I don't think he can like sit back and say like Given the last three years, I've built a great resume. I can go to another team now and like really market myself and get a a $20 million a year deal. First of all, fully agree. And I'm glad that you separated the two because I do think Jones is the one who really has a lot to, to prove and to just figure out. Because for me, Daniel Jones is one of the toughest impending free agents, one of the toughest you know, young-ish quarterbacks to evaluate because you look at, I mean, you you did a good job of touching on some of the statistical aspects of it. I look at situation and I also look at kind of the it factor with Daniel Jones. And when it comes to situation, I mean, we've talked about how this is, you know, Trevor Lawrence's real rookie season because he had such a bad infrastructure, such a bad coaching situation last year. Daniel Jones basically had that for three years. So how do we evaluate all that now that he's in his first season with an actually competent head coach who's calling the right plays for him with a healthy Saquon and not much else on the offense around him. At the same time, what's like the highlight of Daniel Jones's career so far? It's almost like his it's first win ever. It's the trip. Yeah, the trip. <laughs> like it's almost it's almost his first win ever when he beats Jameis and the Bucks on the missed field goal in his first ever start. Like beyond that, there's a lot of gritty tough wins over some, you know, decent teams. They beat the Ravens this year. That's a good win. They beat the Packers in a win that looks better at the time than it really is. But it's hard for me to really point out a moment in Daniel Jones's young career where he's like asserted himself and and said, you know, I can be the future of this team. Like this is a glimpse into the future of what I can be if everything goes right. Like it's tough for me to find those like anecdotes. So it's an interesting dichotomy. Like the situation's been bad, but I also, either good or bad, I haven't seen a whole lot from Daniel Jones that makes me feel sure about his future either way. 
I'm look, I'm in complete agreement. I, I came into this season saying if there was one guy who was going to facilitate the anomalous leap of Daniel Jones, it was the guy that facilitated the anomalous leap of one Josh Allen. My question is, I, I, I think we've got Daniel Jones pretty pinned down at this point. I'd like to throw a question at you, Dex. This is from over the cap, the APY for running back contracts. You see the guys at the top that have gotten paid. Mixon, Jones, Chubb, Henry, Dalvin, Zeke, Kamara, McCaffrey. Do you think... Barkley inserts himself in that conversation of like a $12 million a year back. Right around it. I don't know if it's 12, but I think it's 10 plus because he's shown that when he is healthy and at his peak, he can do things that maybe only the top two or three running backs in the league can do. It's really tough, Kale, because he has been hurt. Um, and you, you do always worry about paying running backs just because the shelf life historically is not only the shortest in any position, but getting shorter. So I really don't know what you do with a Saquon Barkley who has these injury issues, but at the same time has been as much a part of your offense as any skill player in the league has been a part of theirs and has helped carry them to some tremendous success this year that was well above what we anticipated. But now you also see that when a running back does that early in the season, the chances of them slowing down down the stretch are greater. We even saw that with the historic 2018 season that Todd Gurley had by the Super Bowl. It's C.J. Anderson's team, and Todd Gurley's not even there anymore. So I just don't know. Like, yeah, I think he's going to get that contract. But I don't I don't know if it's ever justified for a running back because of the beating that they take throughout the season. I am fascinated by this year's running back market. It's amazing. Uh, I, I mean, it's just going to be a real case study in weighing, like, I, I I understand positional value, but just, like, true impact of singular players. Like, you see Kamara's kind of fallen off this year, but, like, McCaffrey's, like, revolutionizing the Niners. And then you have a free agent class of, on top of Barkley, Kareem Hunt, Rashad Penny, uh, Josh Jacobs, Jamal Williams, and then even there's like a next tier Tony of Tony Pollard, Miles Sanders. Those are the top of the top. Miles Sanders is in there. That next tier of guys are like Raheem Mostert, Deontay Foreman. And then you also have like running backs don't matter as a term and as like a, 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 a uh, philosophy has not really been tested at, in the drafting level like a don't draft running backs in the first round hasn't been tested in a post Saquon world. Like, like that draft happened. We then came up with uh, running backs don't matter replacement level, et cetera, et cetera. But like no running backs were really like that good to challenge that. Now you've got a guy like Bijan Robinson, like, you know, he's now getting projected as like a top 10 ish guy. Like it's going to be interesting to see with this free agent class and this running back class where rubber meets the road. Like how tested will this pathology kind of be? 
it becomes like you i'll use the eagles as a case study here right the eagles have gotten unreal production out of miles sanders this year miles sanders now number one in dyar he's an impending free agent having a career year but has always been a very efficient running back in that offense who just hasn't gotten the touches they've always done it by committee he's having that breakout kind of year do you let him walk in free agency do you pay him market value do you use your very gracious first round pick from the saints on Bijan robinson or do you just say hey we'll go into next season with like a third round running back in gainwell and boston scott i have no idea but I'm fascinated by it because of how good Sanders has been this year and because of that general parable that runs through our minds that running backs don't matter. We're put a bow on this. This is the curveball debate of the week. Uh, eating into our last headline. This one comes from Chris Whittingham in a guest appearance on the Dan Labatard show. Talking about... We already talked about Bills, Dolphins playing in a snow globe this weekend. If Chris Whittingham had his way, those days would be long gone. The Buffalo Bills should be mandated by the National Football League to have a dome over their stadium. Oh, yes. come on. This shit, is, this shit is ridiculous. Give loser me mentality. What do you mean loser mentality? No, loser. like they've already had to move one game. Because of conditions in the area, there was literally six feet of snow in Buffalo, but they couldn't even play a football game. Right. This weekend, I'm, 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 already, I'm already reading reports about there being several inches of snow. It's going to be ridiculous conditions to play in. First off, Buffalo, as a, as a weather city, should probably not have a football team. Let's start there. Okay. But let's move on from there to, at the very least, if we must have a football team in Buffalo... Can they? Bob is yelling at you. From <laughs> and time room. out a second. Can you put that on the poll, please? Which which one do you want to go with? Buffalo should be mandated to have a dome, or Buffalo as a weather city should not be allowed to have a football team. So here's the crazy thing: if you're going to use the evidence of the game this season where they had to move it against Cleveland, move the game to Detroit. It's actually a better take that the city just shouldn't have a team than it is that the city should have to have a dome. Because in Buffalo, the snow can get so extreme that you can't get on the road. You can't fly a team in to play the Bills. You can't, you know, get people to the stadium. That's why that game wasn't played there, not because there was a lot of snow on the ground. It was because physically the logistics of holding a game and having people leave the house was unsafe. So from that standpoint, I kind of get it. It's like major weather events happen in Buffalo. They had this event called the... They've they had only had award. that kind of event happen once, though. I agree. In recent, in recent memory, at least, they've only had one weather-related cancellation from snow. But this is we're talking about a city that is yearly in contention for the so-called Golden Snowball Award, a.k.a the city with significant enough population that has the most snowfall. So it's not as if you can say there's no precedent for something like that to happen again, especially, I mean, with what we know about global weather patterns, they're intensifying. Summers are getting hotter, winters are getting snowier. Uh, but that being said, I mean, this is a inflammatory take and our Buffalo listeners are not going to stand for it. So I, I stand with them. We can figure this out rather than having to mandate domes and, 
taking the team out of Buffalo. We can we can work with this. And snow football rocks, by the way. I that's the that's like the thing that's missing from this debate is yeah, I understand that, you know, you probably if you're starting Tyreek Hill in fantasy this week like I am, you're nervous because that game could be seven to seven. But it's fun to watch. And we when's the last like serious snowy playoff game that we've had that's really thrown people for a loop? I can't remember it since maybe the snowball in two thousand one. Did it? It kind of snowed for the uh, Green Bay special teams uh, crapshoot last year, right? It was snowy. Yeah. But that's like dusting more than... We're talking about like a snow game. Yeah, this is dusting more than the snowball. Uh, We cut the clip off because it's what we do on the show. It can't be dominated by clips. But I will say they go on to mention that Chicago may adopt a dome uh, in their next stadium. And that like, I forget who it was on the show, but they push back and say like, honestly, like Chicago should be mandated to be an open field. Uh, I'm currently working on like an off season research project. It involves me going into the full century of history on the bears. Uh, and I'm reading old newspaper articles from the 1920s covering the Chicago. You, by the way, the amount of times weather gets brought up, it's like, oh, they missed five place kicks because of rain, or or like it, it was a sloppy game that couldn't pass because of all the rain. Oh, they missed five place kicks because of lake effect wind. The human element in sports, like the natural element in sports, like that, we need more variables. We can't just have, like, I like baseball in the sense that, like, domed or, like, domed or open, different field dimensions, different wall heights. Like, I like these unique elements that individual stadiums bring. I like the fact that Chicago has never had a good quarterback in its history that Jay Cutler is the team's all-time leading passer despite existing for 100 years because they just don't have, like, the environment for that to work. Like, they have – like, they're always a defensive football team. They're always a ground team. Like, I find that fascinating. I find, like, those extra elements having to – like, you having to build around where you live or where you're based is always fascinating to me. And the fact that Buffalo in has built one of the most exciting, dynamic passing attacks in football and, and has just been, like, not only done the ground stuff, but, like, really transcended through the air and, like, defied those natural elements. Like, that's cool. Like, that's awesome. Like, that is historically significant. Like, we should have more moments like that. The more we kind of homogenize the whole league and put everything in domes and control all the elements, like, it's building a certain kind of football, but it's building a less overall interesting league. We need Buffalo Bills. We need Chicago Bears. We need Lambos. We need Soldier Fields. Like, we need these, like, cold-weather stadiums to create these, like, awesome moments and unique teams in the league. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to, like, what kind of league are we trying to build? And I think that element of harsh weather environments and home field advantages in the playoffs, especially, are what we need. I think back to, like, 
a Patriots 2004-2003 Super Bowl DVD because it happens both years where the league's highest flying passing offense in Peyton Manning's Colts has to go into Foxborough and it's snowy and the music is playing in the NFL films background as Teddy Bruschi and Rodney Harrison are just blowing people up. They're literally changing the rules for receivers because they're getting hit so hard. Like that's that's what I like. I like the fact that there are these like altruisms about postseason football that like it's hard to go into Foxborough in January. It would be very hard to go into Buffalo in January and compete with Josh Allen. Um, yeah, I, I want more of that. Thank you, by the way, for being a great bassoon or whatever that was just then, Kale. Yeah, no, you don't. That song only exists in NFL weather. It all like it only exists in these like harsh football conditions. Like the old NFL films music is where that stuff is born, and we don't get it. We don't get those moments without cold weather state. Need it. As always, football outsiders cannot be. We can't do this show for football outsiders without putting football outsiders up to scrutiny. Jackson. We've got a whole bunch of people kind of unified on this take front here. Yeah, and I think we're coming back to you on it later, potentially. Uh, but first, we've got to talk about the head honcho, Aaron Schatz, the man himself. On the FO Data Show this week, he's got a bit of a take about the MVP buzz for Jalen Hurts. And I think that our listeners might find it interesting. I uh, I don't quite get the Hurts as MVP favorite thing. I just, I mean, I just feel like the Eagles are much more of a well-rounded team, whereas the Chiefs are much more carried by one guy. Like, it's not best player on best team. It's most valuable play. Like, who's the best player? Who's the most important player on the Eagles? It's Jalen Hurts. But who's the most valuable player in the league? It's Patrick Mahomes. Come on. Now... That's not all with this take, because we're getting a two-for-one. Our Derek Klassen, the QB whisperer, gets on Twitter, the old bird app, and jumps in on the very same take here. Somebody asks him, how do people think Mahomes is an MVP? He simply says, boredom or delusion, mostly. So all of FO seems to be on the Patrick Mahomes is MVP, and anything else just isn't right. But where do you stand on this take, Kale? So my take in all of this was the only award the Eagles are a lock for is Executive of the Year from Howie Roseman. And while I think Hurts is closer to MVP than Nick Sirianni is to Coach of the Year, I don't think either should be the odds-on favorite. Now I'll expand on that and say... You look at the leap that this team took. It was already a really good rushing team. Hertz was a very qualified mobile quarterback. And the passing wasn't fully there yet. Or at least the dimension of the passing he currently has now. He doesn't get that without A.J. Brown. I think A.J. Brown is a massive help. And I think the work that Roseman has done to build this offensive line, you know, keeping Kelsey in the building, Landing guys are joining my lot of, like, he's done a really good job in building up one of the best offensive lines in the league. I think that helps Hurts immensely. 
And I think her scrambling ability helps the fact that he, like, there was a graphic on screen uh, during their game where he's first in all these metrics with a clean pocket. Ringer Steven Ruiz points out that that might be survivorship bias. But basically, because Herbert has or Hertz has such a strong ability to bail out of a pocket and scramble when the pocket collapses, we don't see the throws that could have been made with Hertz under duress because he just throws a lot less of them. With that being said, the Mahomes side of this is that while Hertz improves with addition, Mahomes has maintained, if not overperformed, with subtraction. Loses his top wide receiver in Tyreek Hill. It is an impossible singular player to replace by committee. And with the rotation of receivers that he's had, on top of like figuring things out at running back, solid offensive line, having Travis Kelsey, like Hertz is er, now I'm screwing up. Mahomes has performed fantastically, has performed out of his mind, top of the league. Still number one DYAR, number three in DVOA. And on top of that, he looks like a better quarterback. He is performing within structure, within system. Instead of just being the guy that constantly breaks out, rolls out, tries to improvise, being the backyard football guy, he's now working in system and has the ceiling pushing, like elevating capability to do the backyard football stuff. He is a more complete quarterback than he might have ever been at this point in his career. Like he is constantly getting better and it surprises me. And I know there's like MVP fatigue. You see it in other sports. But if Rodgers can win back to back at his age, like Mahomes should be able to get one right now. So I'm, I agree with that. Where I want to come back to your take and we can get into some of this hurt stuff with it as well. But I mostly want to touch on your notion that only Howie Roseman is a lock right now which I don't necessarily want to totally hate on because I think out of the three like Roseman Sirianni Hurts I think Roseman is the biggest like slam dunk runaway favorite that being said when you go back in the archives and look at NFL seasons I don't think you're going through executive of the year awards to judge, you know, historical success of a team as much as you are MVP, coach of the year. I think those are the two big awards, MVP first, coach of the year second for team success. And I don't think that this Eagles season gets enough credit by just having executive of the year for Howie Roseman if they end up going 16 and 1 or even 15 and 2. I think one of those guys also has to win it. Um and for me the reason that I lean Sirianni over Hurts is because yeah, Hertz was quite good beyond development that we maybe expected from him last year as a first-year starter. Now we're talking about him in this MVP conversation. I get that they have additions on the offense. A.J. Brown makes a huge difference. Keeping the offensive line intact and adding pieces makes a huge difference. But the individual development of Hertz goes beyond that, and I think Sirianni gets a lot of credit for it. On top of that, they've improved from the 25th best defense to the 7th best, which, yes is largely because Howie Roseman brings in the right pieces. 
And I know Sirianni isn't a defensive coordinator by any stretch, but he's still the one overseeing the entire scheme and game plan of the team. So to me, like when a team has this much improvement from year to year, and we're talking about the Eagles were a playoff team last year and are still in contention pretty much only with the Vikings for the biggest year to year win improvement. They're going to win either five or six, maybe seven more games than they won last year. Then I think somebody else has to get a major award besides just the executive. And I think as of right now, and, and Vegas kind of bears this out as well, Sirianni's minus 175-ish in most places to win coach of the year. Hertz is the favorite for MVP, but he's more like minus 105, minus 115. Uh, I, would, I would give the edge slightly to Sirianni over Hertz and not the other way around. Uh, most of the counterpoints I have for you on the Sirianni front uh, are points you've already used. Uh, like, I don't think you can give Sirianni credit for the fact that this went from a bottom 10 to a top 10 defense, especially given the additions that they've made. I also think it helps a ton that they've had the 30th easily easiest pass schedule, past schedule, not pass as in passing, past schedule so far this year, and they don't play a ton of teams left. I think it helps a ton for their record performance. It's the same thing with the Vikings. Like, when you have an easy schedule but aren't performing up to snuff, the Eagles are absolutely performing up to snuff. But I think the thing that had pushed them from an already existing playoff team to a playoff contender is the extra dimension of their offense and the complete turnaround of their defense. And I just think other coaches in singular situations, I understand from an odds perspective. I get what you're saying. But I just think coaches have better arguments to make than what Sirianni has. I, like, I understand you're looking from the top down at some of this stuff, but even still, like, most teams in the AFC wildcard have a coach with a better argument for a coach of the year award than Sirianni. I think Daniel's a better argument. I think Salah's a better argument. I think his argument to be made that Campbell Salah is be coach crazy. of the year. <laughs> Salah being better argument for coach of the year than Sirianni is mind blowing that you have that. From a historically bad defensive, uh, from the league worst passing defense, starting nothing but third stringers, to being a top five passing defense is a nuts turnaround. For yeah, being one they, of the worst defenses in the they're league. They're playing Zach Wilson this week, and if they defense, lose, they'll be out of playoff position. Crazy. Listen, I get what you're saying. I think the turnaround the Jets have made is is transcendent. I, I, I it's think great, but it sets them he up has more a for better that. argument for from number two overall pick to potential playoff team because these votes are going to happen bef- like by the close of the regular season. They're not going to have playoffs in. I just think that Salah makes a much like a better case than Sirianni. I think McDaniel makes a better case than Sirianni. I think the overall overhauls of these teams are more impactful than like pushing from wild card to contender. You got an easy schedule when you got a division leader. Are you just, can I just bring it back? Are you in full agreement on the, on the Mahomes over Hertz thing? Or do you have any pushback there? Yeah, no, I would, I would vote for Mahomes over Hertz. I think Hertz has been extremely impressive and I would have him in second place and it's close, but I would vote for Mahomes because I think if you just go down the list of like, 
impactful QB stats, he's pretty much at the top of all of them. I get the dual nature of what Hertz is doing in the passing and the ground game, but if you look at things like DYAR, EPA per play, just touchdown passes and yards, which I think are metrics that still matter for a volume perspective, at this point, Mahomes is pretty much lapping the field, and he's doing it having lost his top weapon. Second, maybe top weapon. Yeah. I it, I, I, I wish I wish there wasn't just, like, voter fatigue. It, like, like, class had the right arguments. Boredom. It really is. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's the guy right now. Uh, and I think the thing is people have thought of him as either the guy or in the top two or three for years now. Uh, but this, to me, has been the year where Mahomes has said, like, it's my league. And, yes, I may not win the award. I may not even win the Super Bowl. But – the road to all of these things goes through me. You have to beat me to beat the Chiefs. Uh, whereas if you, you want to beat the Eagles, you have to beat that defense. You have to beat that offensive line. They have so many things they throw at you where Mahomes is just like, he is the Chiefs and he is the league right now. Yeah, and he's just a singular offensive impact on his own. Like in a similar way that Hurts is, doesn't run as much, but like his ability to evade pressure, turn plays out of nothing. Like I just think he's... And he's on the most valuable, con- like one of the most valuable contracts in the league because of how mutable it is. It's yeah. super impressive. Hey, we'll move on, but healthy debate. And maybe this is where we get a call to action this week. Drop it down in the comment section. Hurts for MVP, Sirianni for coach of the year, or neither. Let's hear it. Eagles are walking away with some kind of hardware. Even if they don't win or make a Super Bowl, they're coming away with the lion's share of superlative awards. I I think they're really going to clean house on those. Let's move on. Fantasy section. Back to our guy, Mason, at Fantasy Flock. Diving in once again. Got a little Detroit Lions in there. A little Jared Goff action. Let's hear it. Now, going over to our next guy, we're going to have Jared Goff at 11. Tougher matchup for Jared Goff than he's used to. I mean, last week he was favored by two and a half points over Minnesota. This week, it's essentially a pick game between the New York Jets and Detroit Lions. You don't love the matchup going up against the Jets. The Jets do have a great defense. It is what it is. Goff, very similar to Kirk Cousins. You're betting on the passing volume in an offense that has been pretty damn productive and getting into shootouts as of late or pretty much the entire season. Top 11 guy in fantasy this week, Jared Goff. Just in time. For some fantasy playoffs. Put it on the meter. Yeah, this is a conundrum. And I think he undersells it in the video, honestly. And that's, you know, this guy is a machine. Mason is making tears every single week for every position in fantasy. And he's doing live streams at night of 2023 mock drafts. The guy the guy is on one. So maybe... He's, no, genu- genuinely, <laughs> we feature him on this show because... In a week-to-week basis, there's only so many trustworthy, uh, reliable sources for fantasy content. And of those, Fantasy Flock churns out content. Fantasy Flock is a a content factory from a fantasy perspective. I I hope Mason sleeps is the only thing I'm going (laughs) to say. I hope Mason sleeps. I hope he makes himself breakfast. Like, I, Mason, I'm I'm, I'm hoping you're taking care of yourself, buddy. But great work on the Flock. Drink some water. Uh, But... I think he undersells what a hot take this is uh, because some of us have Lamar Jackson, right? Some of us got to our fantasy playoffs 
and we had Lamar Jackson as our quarterback. So now we are pondering a starting decision between somebody like a Jared Goff and maybe an Aaron Rodgers or maybe a Tyler Huntley as Lamar's replacement. Maybe you had enough money this week to pick up Trevor Lawrence off waivers. So putting Jared Goff in this spot when ESPN projects him for only 14 points against a very tough Jets defense is a hot take. It's bold. But I also like it because, yeah, he might only drop 10 to 14, but the Lions' offense, and specifically the passing offense, have shown that explosive capability where maybe Jared Goff's going to get you a 25-26 like he did last week, whereas Aaron Rodgers doesn't have a game with 20 fantasy points all season. So I, as much as I think that Mason needs to say, like, this might be like kind of controversial, but I think you should start Jared Goff in fantasy this week, I think ultimately I'm going to end up having to do it, uh, which is a scary proposition against this Jets defense. Listen, I'm the biggest Lions truther there is. Uh, I am. I am up there. I don't know if there's a there's a Lions adjacent Campbell centric uh, version of two and on, uh, but I'd I'd be in there. Uh, that being said, <laughs> I don't know this week. I, I I feel honestly, the Quinn like Quinn and Williams potentially not playing in this isn't even that big of a factor for me. It's more now, Zach Wilson. Now that Zach Wilson is playing in this game, it changes for me. It genuinely does. I think that just Wilson, like, this is a much better secondary than uh, golf on this streak is faced, save the Buffalo Bills. My concern is that in a lot of these games, Outside of what I'd say the Vikings game, because the Vikings poured it on at the end, but I also just don't think that the Lions were afraid of like really staying with their foot on the gas. I feel like this is a game where they might turn to the run more because like I think they trust golf to throw it sparingly in a late game in a what in a you know multi-score lead. I think they trust him a little bit to give him some wiggle room there. But, like, I don't know if Zach Wilson's going to be able to keep up the offensive end of the bargain to, like, keep golf passing if this game is as tight as the pick as it suggests. If the Lions get out to any lead, I feel like they go to Williams. I feel like they go, like, work on the ground more. Why would you want to test this secondary? Why would you want to go at – Sauce Gardner or, or DJ Reed or uh, LaMarcus Joyner, Jordan Whitehead. Like, why would you want to go at and really attack one of the best young secondaries in football? I feel like in this case, especially if they don't have Sheldon Richardson in a league, you got to go Williams. You got to go Swift. You got to attack the ground. It's what makes me reserved not only the skill of the secondary, but if the Lions take a lead, I don't think the Jets are going to hold up their end of the bargain to keep golf passing late. Here's some support for your argument here. We talked about how Jared Goff has had those explosive games. He has a 33-point fantasy game. He has two games with 26 points. We have a pretty good idea of what Jared Goff looks like at MetLife Stadium because he did it 
four weeks ago. He came to MetLife Stadium to play the Giants in a game that the Lions won pretty comfortably. He went 17-26 for 165 passing yards, no touchdowns, only 6.5 fantasy points. Makes me nervous. Makes me extremely nervous. Now, do I start Aaron Rodgers over him in potentially sub-zero weather in Lambeau Field? I don't know. It's not a position I wanted to be in. I wish Lamar wasn't hurt, but here we are. And this is the reality that I'm uh, struggling to face as we make it towards round one of the fantasy playoffs. Hey, all I'm saying is who's been there before? Jared Goff, not playing a lot of ton of outdoor games. Not playing a lot of cold weather games. And even in that Giants game, like that was a full team win by Detroit. That was in any given Sunday game. That was a full team win by Detroit. That was like an Aleem McNeil emergence. That was like a really good Aiden Hutchinson game. That was a really good Kirby Joseph game. Like we're getting a lot of – like it's a full team win. And not saying that all games aren't full team wins, but like golf has been asked to take over a little bit more in recent weeks. I'll be very interested to see how this one pans out. Jax, I don't, I don't hate. Who does Rogers have this week off the top of my head? Rams. I don't hate that. How do you feel about? How do you feel about a little? Uh, how do you feel about getting a little dangerous? Oh gosh! I, isn't he? Is he even really? playing? He's concussed. Oh my god! Yeah, no, he's concussed. Never mind. He's out. How do oh, you you're feel? Not, about you're not, you're on the Brett Rippin Rippin fantasy playoffs, Jackson. Not great. You're not rolling with Rippin. No. All right, let's move, move on. Let's, Next topic. Let's move on. Inside the NFL, Brandon Marshall getting into our pickums. He was the only member of the inside the NFL desk in their pick'em to take the Bills to cover seven and a half spread against the Miami Dolphins. Let's hear his rationale. I mean, this is a tough one. This really is tough. I mean, the Dolphins to me over the last two weeks haven't shown that they're ready for this moment. The Buffalo Bills, they've been on this pedestal for the last three years. This is put up or shut up game for them. So I'm going to go with the Bills to cover because this is, this is bigger than just this Saturday night. This is, are we real? So I'm going to go with the Bills. Wow. They're going to make Bill. a statement. Are they real? Is the statement they're going to answer on Saturday night. Jackson, meter time, put it on. Hot. Because as we have established on this show, there is such thing as too many points. And no, it's not a double-digit spread. But seven and a half in a potential lake effect snow game is scary i think this is a low scoring game despite the fact that these are two very explosive offenses i think there's a lot of potential for a backdoor cover we saw it last week in buffalo where the bills were nine and a half point favorites against the jets seized control of that game in the second half looked like they had a pretty easy win at hand but give up the late field goal and only win by eight and the jets cover I see a lot of potential for the same thing here. Do I like the narrative from a football standpoint that he's bringing out that this is the type of game Buffalo needs to win in order to establish themselves as Super Bowl contenders? You you bet. I totally believe that. But it's a lot of points for a snow game. I see a lot of backdoor cover potential. So just from a pick standpoint, I think it's pretty hot. It's fascinating to me that Vegas doesn't really seem to... Like... 
And maybe it's just because both of these offenses are so good as is, and their defenses are solid, but, you know. Buffalo's defense is good. Miami's defense should be good or better than it's been. Uh, but the over-under is sitting at, like, 44, 44 and a half, which, like, isn't unreasonable for a weather game. Like, Baltimore-Cleveland's 38 and a half this week. Two different teams, but they're not getting lake effects now. Like, and it makes me think that Buffalo's going to be able to cover. We talked about the Miami portion of this already. Buffalo, I agree with Brandon Marshall, has been not as dominant as we'd like them to be, as an odds-on Super Bowl favorite coming out of the preseason, uh, a consistent contender week in and week out. Uh, like, as one of those top three teams in the league, I don't think Buffalo's been nearly as dominant as we'd like them to be. It's, you know, they've picked up quality wins. They, I, I honestly think gutting out a win in Detroit on a short week is now, like, a genuinely good win for the Bills. I think, pick, like, taking care of business against division opponents, especially going into Foxborough and doing it by two scores, good wins. This is a t- like, I think this is real put up time because they haven't shown the dominance that we know they're willing to show. Like we haven't gotten that forty, like we haven't gotten anything close to that like thirty eight three Pittsburgh game, that forty one seven Titans game. Like we haven't got really like foot on neck style. Like we're better than you. We're this much better than you. And I think that could happen with Miami. I think it's. No pun intended, a perfect storm. Like Miami's getting solved. Buffalo's D is looking for a little bit more engagement. They're looking for a statement. They're closing out divisional play. Ah, they've got one more game against the Patriots to close the season. But like they're closing out this stretch of three straight divisional games. I think this, I think this is a huge game for Buffalo. I like the seven and a half. I wasn't willing to take it in staff picks. But I really like the Buffalo seven and a half. Well, you also leave out the narrative of they're going for the one seed. They're tied with KC and own the tiebreaker, but have a much tougher schedule down the stretch than KC does. They're only one game ahead of Cincinnati and they still play Cincinnati. So this is a game they need if they want that one seed. And then that playoff run goes through Buffalo. We've talked about how expectations for this team are Super Bowl or bust for the first time in franchise history, at least since the Jim Kelly stretch. Um, And this is, you know, a game where you absolutely have to take care of business. I just think the weather scares me in a sense that I don't know how explosive they can be. But all the other factors that you talked about, plus the revenge factor on Miami for beating them earlier in the season... Uh, you've even heard like Diggs post in New England game with still a game between them and the Miami game in front of them saying we want Miami like they they want this one bad. So from a narrative perspective, I like where you're coming from. Let's stick on the pick'em train. Jackson, this one like could have been a headline. This one could have been a pick'em. I stuck it in the picks because it's got to do with this week's game, but it expands further. PFF's It's Just Football Show. Mike Renner 
takes a little bit of an interest in the Jacksonville Jaguar. Where not only are they going to beat the Cowboys this weekend, Jacksonville will control their playoff destiny going forward. Jaguars, after this weekend, Mm -hmm. will control their playoff destiny. Wow. That means that after this weekend, if they win out, and obviously that takes a win this weekend over the Cowboys, that takes a Titans loss to the Chargers. That happens, and that's what I'm predicting is going to happen. Jags control the destiny. Ooh, Jags versus Cowboys. How's it going to happen? Trevor just takes over, just keeps being incredible. Trevor just... He plays like he's been playing. Second highest great quarterback since week nine. Trevor takes over. Jaguars win this weekend. Get a little help from the Chargers and they control their playoff destiny. Put it on the meter. I think it's the hottest take we've had so far this show. For the purposes of the show, going to go super hot. Uh, Yeah, I mean... Just look at who they've beaten this year. That Chargers win in week three is kind of still the most impressive win they have. Other than that, it's the Raiders. It it is the Ravens, but kind of took a a bit of a collapse there from the Ravens as they've had in all their losses this season. This Cowboys win would be of a different magnitude than anything the Jags have pulled off this year. And I think, even though he doesn't get into it on this clip, a lot of this is assuming that the Cowboys are kind of overrated and that this Texans game was the sign of more to come. I don't think so. I think this was a classic trap game. Cowboys just didn't even wake up for it until the fourth quarter when they realized, oh, crap, we're about to lose and just kind of pulled it out. Um, But that happens to good teams every year. And I think that this is more so looking like if this is going to happen, he's right. It's all going to be about Lawrence. Like Lawrence has to lead this win by himself. Uh, And I think, I mean, look, the Jaguars do not have an impressive defense either. The Cowboys have been number one in points scored since Dak came back. They can win in a shootout even if Lawrence plays the game of the year. I just think there's too many variables pointing towards a Cowboys win for me to believe in this one. You have little faith, Jackson. I am a little Uh, faith. Okay, first off, can't call the Ravens game a collapse. That was fully earned. Uh, In earnest, like, the throws that Trevor Lawrence was making in those final four minutes of that game were truly, truly special. You can call the offensive side of it uh, a bit of a letdown, but like defensively, that is more earned by Jacksonville than lost by Baltimore. You're not expecting a quarterback to give up those, those deep pull shots against a too high defense, and he earned those. I think the hang-up for me in this game comes in... Dallas, like, like it, it's it's more Dallas for me than Jacksonville. I I think Jacksonville like can like in a singular game. Again, Dallas, much better team, much more skilled defense. I understand all that. Like we caught right at the kind of tail end of that clip before I cut it off. Dax had a bit of a turnover problem. He said five interceptions in the last three games and that's against the Giants Colts and Texans it's not like great teams he he threw two interceptions against the Packers as well two weeks prior like it's listen there's volatility in that and I think this is 
the hardest. This is the biggest roadblock to the Jaguars controlling their own playoff destiny. Because after this, it's at Jets, at Houston, hosting Tennessee. No matter who the quarterback is, like, Trevor Lawrence is the better quarterback. You're going to have a fight in New York. Again, the defense is good, but if we're picking, if I'm picking the Lions to beat the Jets this week, I can pick the Jaguars to beat the Jets the next week. I think they've got a chance to actually do this. I don't know. Like, I don't think it's a crazy bet to take Jacksonville over Dallas. I think at some point, all the good teams, like all the good teams, have these close call games, then get the loss, then come back. I think we're just like at that point in the life cycle for Dallas. It's better tapping yeah, now I mean, than in January. I'm just saying. Yeah, I I agree that there's still a path for the Jags, but I think, as crazy as it is to say, I think the path exists after this Dallas game because I think this is the toughest game they have left, and I think Dallas is still trying to keep pace with Philly and try to make it a a win and in matchup for the one seed, you, you know, I, it, it seems unlikely, but never say never until it's over. Uh, and also what if Dak reverses the turnover trend? Cause they've won all three of those games where he's given the ball away five times. What if he doesn't turn the ball over this game and the Cowboys just really handle business. That's I, I sort of see that side of their aggression pattern. Uh, listen, all I'll say Jackson is more games with two interceptions this season than he has with zero interceptions this season. So, they still find ways to win those games. I Listen, I agree. I agree. I'm just throwing it out there. That, again, Dude, like we said, you. like things things add up. Things add up. I still so, think it's um, the hottest take we had. I, I don't think it's that hot. I, I don't think this is, I don't think this is like your Bortles Jaguars. I don't, or like, I don't think this is your your grandma's Jaguars. I think it's this is like five and eight. a company. We, we give them a lot of credit for a five and eight football team. Yeah, a five and eight football team that can still win the division. We're not like I get the AFC is good. I'm just saying the Jaguars can be better than the Titans. That's all I'm arguing. I agree. That's not the take though. The take is the can Jaguars beat the Cowboys. Beat the, yeah. Cowboys. the take is the Jags are beating the Cowboys this week. I don't I don't agree with that. Little little thing called any given Sunday. I expect to read that from you. That'll do it for us this week. However, we can't close out the show without putting ourselves up to scrutiny. I've held up my end of the bargain. I got lumped in with the rest of FO talking Hurts Mahomes MVP. Jackson. Hit us with yours. Put Close yourself up. This is this is a first for us in that we are going to roll a video clip of me speaking from two days ago and instantly react to it. We, I know you reacted to it two days ago because you had to, because we were live on YouTube and Twitter and everywhere else. But I said this whole Chiefs, no Tyreek Hill thing, despite how well it's worked out for them in the regular season, I think they might miss him more than you're anticipating in the postseason. So roll a clip and let's see what you have to say now. Let's hear you. Lead your case. I know that the Chiefs have still been the number one offense this year. I know that I still have all the faith in the world in Patrick Mahomes, and they're as much of a threat to win it all this year as anybody, but I think you still want to have Tyreek Hill in the playoffs. You're still going to miss that presence. You're going to miss the game-breaking ability. You think about the Super Bowl they win, 
uh, and that game is up in the air and you just throw one deep ball to Tyreek Hill who burns everybody and that just completely changes the entire game and wins you your first Lombardi if you are Patrick Mahomes. So I, I get that this was maybe the right move for them long term, but I think you're still going to miss that guy a lot in the postseason this year. First of all, let me say, of all the video clips we've pulled this year, I think those are the two handsomest guys we've pulled from. But Did you see, see how tall that Briar Farms hat was? Very. From a football perspective, judging my take, you had something to say about it Wednesday. Maybe two days have let my truths fester into you a little bit more. Where are you at now? The Chiefs will actually miss Tyreek Hill in the postseason. Don't, I don't see it. Like, like, I get it. I get what you're saying from, like, the effort Tyreek down there somewhere perspective. Like, that is an element that is lost. But I also think that the floor of the Chiefs is considerably higher. Like, just the base level of performance because of the, like, you only you only had Hill and, and Kelsey. You didn't have, like, like are you, are you really going to lump in Miko Hardman and Sammy Watkins into that bunch? Like, now you have a much greater depth of receivers. You have more tight ends working into the system. They've been working on, like, 13 personnel this year, something that they've never done. They've got more capable running backs. Like you have better, you have a better roster of weapons than you did previously. You have a better offensive line to do it with. Like I said in my earlier take, Mahomes is performing more like you would see a prototypical quarterback perform at this time and still has that game breaking backyard football ability. I think there's a logic where, like, there was always this Packers logic with getting rid of Devontae Adams that it's like it actually hinders Aaron Rodgers to have Devontae Adams on the roster because he looks to him too much in the postseason and you shut down that one option and you don't have much left. And, like, he'll actually be better because he'll have, like, a more varied roster and he'll be able to go to more guys. Uh, It didn't work out that way for Green Bay, and I think that's exactly how it worked out for Kansas City. Like, I think that is really how it worked out for Kansas City. They still have this really dynamic passing offense. Like, they still have some of the best quarterback play in the league. And I think the total roster that they've created is better off and better structured for a postseason run without Tyreek Hill than with him. I just don't agree. That's they, fine. What are their two their two biggest wins in the past two postseasons have both been over the Buffalo Bills. The Buffalo Bills are probably going to be your biggest challenge once again in the AFC this year, although we know they have trouble with the Bengals as well. In those two wins over the Bills, talking about the 2020 AFC Championship and last year's divisional round, Tyreek Hill, 20 catches, 322 yards in those two games. I don't think it's controversial to say you're going to miss that. Yes, the overall offense has made up for his production in the regular season. When you get to the postseason, it is about those star quality skill players putting up monster games and helping put the team on their back. And I just don't know. I I mean, I'm not saying the Chiefs can't do it without him, but I think they're really going to miss that. 
11 catches for 150 last year against the Bills in the, in the game they win in overtime. That matters. But he also had like 78 yards against the Bengals. He also had like 73 yards against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Those are if, that's the only guy, if that's the only guy you have on your roster that's your really go-to receiver, like 73 yards is a solid performance, but you got no one underneath him outside of Kelsey. Like, you look at the losses and you see that, oh, yeah, like the teams that we lost to had three, four skill position players deep across the board. Like, there's also stifling defenses that can take those kinds of things away, that can isolate singular impact players. Like, he helps out in these, like, major situations. But, like, when you're when he's the only guy, when he's the only guy, I think it's better to just have more volume. I think it's better to just have a deeper roster of guys. And Tyreek Hill made their roster deeper by pushing everyone down on the depth chart. Without him, I think you just like the way the money's allocated, the skill position guys that you have, I think they're just a better roster overall right now. I don't think they're like, I don't think they have the crazy ceiling, but I think just how much they've raised their floor, like just how many counter punches they've added to their offense, I don't think they're going to miss him that much. I don't see it that way. I just think when you get you get into the playoffs and somebody doubles, you know, Kelsey and does their best to take him out of the game, you're really going to be like, oh, thank goodness we have Juju, MVS, and Jarrett McKinnon instead of Tyreek Hill. I just don't. I don't see it that way. Yeah, and if someone doubled Tyreek Hill, you'd say, oh yeah, we can go back to. Neither Juju nor Marcus Valdez Scantling because that's you can't. When, that's it. when Kelsey's Nico Hardman Sky Moore. That's when Kelsey's, Kelsey's also a much harder defender to double and like completely erase. New England hasn't been able to completely erase Travis Kelsey. Travis Kelsey comes alive against the Chargers twice a year. You don't think that they know that he's gonna just maul them every time? They've tried taking him away. He's a very hard player to take away because he's in a more Valuable and difficult to defend position. Like, you can't defend them with a cornerback. There aren't many linebackers or safeties that are good enough in single coverage against him. Like, he's a harder player to take away. So just saying, like, yeah, you just double him. Like, it's not as simple as that because doubling him is going to open up a lot more things for other guys. And having three guys guys deep in that position is also going to help when things open up because it's not just one guy. I just think the one guy is so special. I mean, we're not we're not going to get anywhere further on this. We got to end the show, but I I I can't believe it's so controversial to say that Tyreek Hill leaving is is a bad thing for this team in the postseason. I I'm really I, I'm interested to hear what other people have to say. As always, this is a that is, show. Hop that'll in the be our let CTA. Us know. Are they going to miss him or not? That'll be our CTA. I think that'll get I'll get the juices flowing in the comments below. But that'll do it for us. Let's put a bow on it, because I think we could talk about this for a while. And it was getting circular anyway. <laughs> as I said, thank you as always to the people who put themselves out there to contribute to this big take ecosystem. Please check out their stuff below. As always, we've got to thank our friends over at Underdog Fantasy. Did your season-long fantasy teams miss the playoffs? Mine did. I went 2-10-2 this year. But fear not! Play on Underdog Fantasy with us and double your first deposit up to $100 with promo code OUTSIDERS. Play Underdog's Battle Royale, a fast, 
six round weekly fantasy football draft with easier chances to win than traditional daily fantasy sports sites. You can even win $50,000 if you grab first place. Or you can try their pick'em games where you can easily pick players' chances to go higher or lower than their projected stat lines, even in states where traditional prop betting currently isn't available. Underdog is the fastest-growing fantasy site around. Join the fun over at underdogfantasy.com or download Underdog in the App Store today. And use promo code OUTSIDERS now to double your first deposit up to $100. Screw it, Kale Jackson's Underdog Fantasy Pick of the Week, Aaron Rodgers. Let's do it. Wow! Wow! That's a big one. I like that. That that was like a mid-show development for you. I'm happy about it. Need it. Need it bad. Let's not forget, you can sign up for FO Plus at footballoutsiders.com slash subscribe for NFL betting picks, fantasy advice, premium statistics, premium articles, and you also get an ad-free experience. Last, certainly not least, if you want to get in on some of this debate on a Sunday, talking ball, you can join us in the Football Outsiders Discord for in-game conversation every Sunday. Just join up on FO, head over to the Audible's Live tab, and chat ball with me. It's usually Brian Knowles in there, Tanir's chiming in, Shots is giving us data, and there are a lot of fun people to talk ball with. Rivka, Coral Skipper. I like I could like there's a lot of good names in there. A lot of fun conversation we had. Why don't you hop in and join? For Jackson, I'm Kale. Thank you as always for listening. Drop a like, drop a subscribe while you're here. It goes a long way for us. Jackson, the CTA, we had a couple. Why don't we round it out for us? Is it Sirianni or Hertz? Coach of the year versus MVP? And are the Chiefs better off without Tyreek Hill in the playoffs? Let us know down there in the comment section on YouTube. For Jackson, I'm Kale. We'll see you next week.